Good evening, everyone. Go ahead and come on in and take a seat. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Tempe, and I want to thank you for being here, uh, being a part of this night. If you've never been to a First Wednesday before, essentially what we're doing here is this is our monthly gathering where we reflect on important cultural topics through the lens of the biblical story. We've talked about everything from creativity to sports to immigration to, um, uh, you know, power. We've talked about a number of different things. And we thought tonight, since we're about a week away from the election, that it would be, you know, why not? Why not just talk about politics, right? I think a lot of people are saying that I'm done with talking about politics for about another 16 years. But what we want to do is we want to have a discussion tonight on political engagement and political community, and in particular, how we love our neighbors through thoughtful, intentional reflection on politics, government, engaging the various structures that affect the lives of the neighbors that we're called to love. But instead of just keeping it at the level of the intelligent discourse that seems to be happening on Facebook, we wanted to ask some different, some different questions, have a different conversation. So tonight we're not talking about either or. What we want to do is talk about questions referring to what does it look like to engage in citizenship beyond the one vote, the one either or vote that the world seems to give us every four years, but thoughtfully engage locally understand the importance of what we're doing. And so tonight we have a couple of excellent speakers that we've invited. We have Stephanie Summers and Katie Thompson from the Center for Public Justice, a think tank that we really need to learn from. You can clap. We had one. I, I didn't want the one person that clapped to feel embarrassed. So thanks for jumping in on that. Um, and then we also have Sho Baraka here, who is, uh, you can clap too, um, who's the, the co-founder of the AND campaign and through his music has been shaping many of us over the last couple weeks of, as we've been listening to his new album. So they're going to talk to us tonight and we're going to try to imagine what it looks like to engage in politics and questions of government as people who are a unique and distinct people. So as we start, I just want you to, to imagine something with me. Imagine if, instead of Christians so easily falling along the sides of the binary idols that the world gives us, some idols standing to the left, some standing to the right, what if we were a unique and distinct community that engaged politics in a way that the world looked in and said there's something different about those people. Not just Christians in this room, but throughout the city and throughout the world. Imagine if we engaged in political discourse and our words were marked by the fruit of the Spirit. Patience, gentleness, kindness, love. As we had deep convictions, but also engaged in a civil manner. Imagine if... We pursued a political vision that is rooted in the love of neighbor, not love of money. Imagine 
If we were people who cared for the whole spectrum of life in God's world, refusing to choose between economics and the environment, young mothers and unborn children, national security and national hospitality, justice and peace, or any other of the binary decisions the world says you have to choose between. Imagine if we were motivated by the self-giving love of Christ rather than self-interest. If we respected and partnered with people from both the left and the right and anything else, but we refuse to bow our knees to their idols, saying that Jesus alone is Lord. What if we engaged in local action rather than national speculation? What if we amplified the voice of the most vulnerable rather than the voice of the highest bidder? And imagine if we were known for people who think and read and pray and are slow to speak and quick to listen as we see elections as a means of loving our neighbors rather than finding our saviors. That would be a gift to the world. And that is the type of discussion that we want to have tonight. So as we have that discussion, I want you now to begin by discussing around your tables with this one question. How have you been provided for and cared for through the government or other people's political action? How have you been provided for, cared for through the government or other people's political action? Go ahead and discuss around your tables and I'll bring us uh, to the next thing in a moment. Father, we are thankful for the reality that you are the Lord over all creation. There's not an inch of this world or a, an issue or a domain of life that you do not care about intimately, as this is your world. And Lord, would you help us tonight to grow as stewards within your world? Would you fill us with wisdom and creativity, love for one another, humility, and just a sense of loving our neighbor under your lordship as we engage in the very complex systems of this world. Lord, we need you. And uh, we just pray for just a generous hearts with one another tonight. And uh, that you would give us wisdom through the speakers. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, like I mentioned before, we have two speakers coming up. They're just going to come up back to back. Uh, the first speaker that we have tonight is Stephanie Summers, the CEO for the Center for Public Justice, this rich think tank who's shaped us quite a bit, and she is going to be talking about citizenship as our common vocation. So would you go ahead and give her a hand as she comes up? So we had this conversation at my house before I came here about what you wear in Arizona. Because in Washington, D.C., when you do a panel, you have a uniform, especially if you're a woman, you wear a blue blazer and charcoal trousers and brown pumps and a white blouse and a scarf. And my friends in New York tease me because every time I do a panel in New York, I show up in a light blue blazer with light gray trousers, no scarf, and flats. So this apparently is what Arizona looks like, but you don't look like me. Sorry. Better informed next time. Um, thanks to Jim and to all the folks from Redemption. Um, I'm really grateful uh, that you want to have this conversation, and I'm really looking forward to it. So 
I haven't been living under a rock, and neither have you, so you're keenly aware that we're in the middle of an election year. Um, I actually have a little thing that every day sends me the election countdown, so we're six days away. Um, and many of us in this room, I would posit, are struggling not to hate everyone. <laughs> and I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that, right? If we were to look into our hearts, it would meet Jesus's definition of hate, right? Where either we hate the other side, or we wanna be people who shout a pox on both your houses. <laughs> um, this election season has painfully exposed the shallowness of most of our modern political engagement. And we do not have to look very far to see that the responses to this are fear, apathy, withdrawal, and despair. But these are really shallow responses. And the answer, I would say, to sort of the gross deficiencies of our modern political life is not more shallow responses, but more rooted citizenship. Not only in this election season, not only on November 8th, but for every day after November 8th, Christians have been invited by God to stand out as rooted citizens, both in the content and in the manner of our engagement. So I'm gonna take you into a new future. Let's zoom out from November 8th and think about the world that Jim described, the if world. Starts with a question. What is God's purpose for our citizenship? for our membership in political communities. And by political communities, I mean places like Phoenix, Arizona, the United States of America. Have you ever thought about this? What is God's purpose for our citizenship, for our membership in political community? Think about this a different way. If I asked you, what's God's purpose for the church as an institution? I would bet you probably have an answer to that question. But this one, what's God's purpose for our citizenship, for our membership in political communities, is a harder one to answer. Because most of us, we think about citizenship once every four years, maybe. Um, but in scripture, we see that God invites us to respond to the invitation to steward everything that God has made we do this work every day by developing families, by developing churches, by expanding the world of commerce, and on and on. But have you ever thought that God invites us to steward the world God made includes the stewardship of the political communities where we live in our role as citizens? Yet God's very, very good invitation to understand and live out our citizenship in political communities definitely does not seem to line up with the reality of our modern politics. So can we rediscover God's good purpose for our citizenship? Can we respond to God's good invitation to citizenship with joy? I argue that we can, and in fact we must, we must say an enthusiastic yes to what it means to respond to God and serve our neighbors as citizens 
where we see citizenship as our common calling. I'm gonna talk about this in a theological frame, and these are really helpful for this, these beautiful things behind me. Um, let's start at the beginning, right? God created the world, and all that God made is good. And the story of creation itself is a story of development and order. Right from the beginning, God creates humans with the capacity to take part in the continuing process of cultivating human culture. God commands humans to fill and cultivate the earth. And our response to that invitation is an ongoing act of further developing the potential of all that God has made. Culture literally unfurls as humans respond to God, bearing God's image by using the capacities that God has given us for modeling the creativity of God as we work together to exercise the different human responsibilities that are part of the redemptive work of God. Humans exercise faithful responsibility to build families, commerce, and fashion the physical world that we're in. And Christians take part in and help shape a creational order that Christ has renewed and is renewing, an order that is revealing God's will and God's purposes. Now, for those of you who took a political science 101 class or went through civics in school, um, you don't hear this and think, hey, this is the political origin narrative I'm familiar with, right? Unlike most political narratives uh, that start with the construction of political communities as either a conversation about human will to power or a social contract, this one is rooted at the creation. The mandate to humans to cultivate culture means that the genesis of our political communities is actually found in what God made. And the folks who are in this room we can remind one another that Jesus is Lord of all creation, including our political communities, including the role we have as citizens in them. And we are invited to understand that we exercise the responsibilities of citizens as a faithful response to God's redemptive work in the world. Now we know that's not the end of the story, right? All that God made is corrupted, we don't obey God's directions. Our rebellion means that every human relationship is distorted by sin. And while God chooses to give the goodness of the created order and enables all humans to participate in further developing all that God made, the potential of any governmental authority is also distorted as a direct result of human rebellion. After our rebellion, the task of any potential government to promote the good, to maintain order, um, has to also take into account the need to restrain evil, and at times use power to compel citizens to act in ways that are good. This too, though, thankfully, is not the end of the story. God sends Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, to redeem all things, and Jesus' death and resurrection provides the way in which all things, humans, institutions, and the physical world itself will ultimately be reconciled to God and to one another. Until that day, every bit of what God made 
remains under God's authority, including our political communities. And the call on all human life is to recognize Jesus' reclamation of all that God created. The good news of Jesus Christ is, among other things, that creation has been recovered and is being restored so that it will finally come to fulfillment in the city of God. Fulfilling God's calling for us in God's world right now means reforming what's been distorted. And this means starting with our political communities as they are right this second in all of the reasons that you don't want to have a conversation about politics. This means we start with our political communities as they are. And our work as citizens is to shape these political communities which must be lined up with God's good purpose and good intent for them. Now, many of us, if we've hung around the church at all, we understand what it means to serve other people in tangible ways. This is pretty easily understood and applied based on the teachings of scripture to serve one's neighbors or to serve the least among us. And for example, you know, redemption folk participate in things like serving the homeless on a regular basis or assisting refugees in the community or adopting kids out of foster care. And this type of service is incredibly important work and it must go on. And it really is a privilege to be in a congregation that has this kind of vision and tangible service in the world, who gets the command to serve our neighbors with our hands and feet with our time, with our talent and treasure, to address material and spiritual needs. Now, we get this type of service, but it is harder, a fair bit harder, for us as Christians to see or understand what it means to serve our neighbors as citizens when it comes to our political communities, like Phoenix, like Arizona, like the United States of America. Continuing with the previous examples of how redemption serves, it's harder for us to think and act as citizens when it comes to investing our time, our talent, and our treasure to respond to God's invitation to work in the structural and systemic and political dimensions of what, say, contributes to homelessness, or lands kids in foster care, or means we have an overflow of refugees seeking refuge and policies that want to keep them out. When we get back together for our panel tonight, my colleague Katie's going to share some examples of how, as citizens, we can respond to God's invitation to serve our neighbors by doing things like reforming the juvenile justice system or addressing systemic issues with foster care that we you know, kind of look at and see many ways uh, that there's real needs there, um, and working to stop unjust lending practices from predatory lenders that prey upon the poor. These are just a few ways where, as a group of citizens, you might begin your work of reforming the political communities in which you live to have more just laws and policies and practices. So consider for a second in this future that Jim is describing, the if future, how you will continue to serve your neighbors in these incredibly tangible ways that matter so much. Your work alongside refugees, your work serving homeless men and women, your work with families in foster care. But then consider how as citizens, 
thinking about the stewardship and the well-being of your political community, you might respond to God's invitation to consider the structural dimensions of what contributes to neighbors going hungry, kids in needs of families, refugees seeking refuge. Citizens begin to do the work of raising thoughtful questions about the reasons behind the ways that not all of our neighbors are able to flourish. Shaped by an understanding of God's intent at the creation for the unfolding of culture and knowing the importance of understanding and interpreting God's word, citizens then began to invest time in understanding and discussing what structural factors are at play that shape the problems and shape the possible solutions. Citizens shaped by this understanding of their responsibilities then examine where potential injustices reside and what could be done so things more fully resemble and line up with the just political community that God intends. You begin to fulfill your calling as citizens, participating in the unfolding of the political community that God intends. And in some cases, this is gonna mean things like advocating for reforms or working to help to shape new laws or policies or administrative structures all things that contribute and ensure a more just political community for everyone. So how can we be Christians in an election year who don't fall into the temptation to hate the other side or disdain the whole political enterprise? We need to remember that God invites us as citizens to examine our political communities with surely a critical but ultimately a hopeful diagnosis Folks who disdain government or government officials ultimately dishonor God, who made both those who are called into this vocation as well as the political communities in which we live. Yes, as citizens, we must be people who animate, scrutinize, advance, and we need to correct through reform our political communities. But we must be people who do this by pointing towards and working towards God's purpose not by tearing down people or tearing down the institution. Responding to God's world as it is right now and engaging as citizens with the world around us in response to God's invitation, God's good invitation, is a vastly different approach than the common responses, a diagnosis of despair, which often leads straight to a decision to withdraw from political engagement entirely. And it is also a different approach than what I would call a baseline effort, which is being civil, right? Civility is a good thing and we really need more of it, but it's a behavior that is a very basic requirement of the Christian person. Civility is not the purpose of our citizenship. Citizenship is indeed our common calling and in calling us to be rooted as citizens, God invites us to develop our abilities to accurately discern the well-being of the political communities in which we live and to respond accordingly. In so doing, we respond to God's call to do justice and love our neighbor. Thanks so much, I'm looking forward to our discussion. All right, well, while show is getting ready to come up, we're going to just discuss around the table a scenario I want to propose to you. 
Imagine right now that the city council, everybody resigned. And the mayor came in here and, you know, the whole, the, the whole city had decided that you at your table needed to decide who was going to fill the vacancies on city council. Now, you can only choose from people in this room. So go ahead around your tables, look around the room, make awkward eye contact with people, and discuss who would be good on city council. All right, everyone. I'm sure you, I'm sure you have city council figured out. Um, if you saw someone staring awkwardly at you from the other side of the room, you should feel honored. So tonight, our second speaker is someone who, uh, though he doesn't know it, has had a lot of influence on the leadership and the people in this room. Um, he's a rapper. He's a, an activist. He's the co-founder of the AND campaign, which if you haven't checked out, that's something that um, I think you should check out. When I first saw it, uh, I, I, I was looking online and I was gripped by the vision of what they're doing in Atlanta, of neither focusing on the left or the right, but a real uh, pursuing the flourishing of their community. And I read every word of that website and then probably bugged you a bunch of times by emailing it, texting it, and posting it on Facebook. So. Show is a, a rapper, his music has in, in, influenced us, and he's the co-founder of that AND campaign. Would you go ahead and give him a hand as he comes up? How are we doing, Tempe? Is it okay to say Phoenix or should I say Tempe? Tempe, Tempe? okay. Y'all got real hood on me, like, nah, cuz. <laughs> Tempe up in here. Um, so as Jim said, I am an artist and a pseudo-activist, I guess you can say, I work with an organization called the AND campaign. And, I am, uh, it's an honor to be here. I spoke earlier this morning to a, a group of pastors uh, through the Surge organization, great group of individuals, men and women doing some wonderful things. Um, and so tonight I'm going to be talking to you about uh, a framework of politics from more of a, a philosophical and sociological perspective while undergirding it through theology and whatnot. Uh, and I promise you everything I say is true. It's definitely correct, and you should not disagree with it. Um, <laughs> I know I'm going to offend some people, but just act like I didn't. Uh, and I decided I'm going to offend you first with a song that I wrote. It's on my new album called The Narrative, and the song is called Maybe Both. Um, and I'm just going to do an acapella because I don't have a band with me. So, um, Unless there's somebody here who can just beatbox really, really good. <laughs> so, no? No takers? All right, here we go. So the song definitely touches on uh, an issue that is prevalent to tonight. He said, I'm looking for a happy ending. I said, we never had happy beginnings. I'm on my knees, I'm praying, I'm on my knees, but now I'm an easy target for them to attack me. Liberals and intellectuals justifying my anger, but when the cameras ain't here, they ain't nowhere near. Oh, so eloquent, watch them pontificate. When the smoke clears, the blogs rebuild real estate. You sitting in your academic tower, tweeting around the hour while the poor fights the power. Oh, stop it. Oh, stop it. You and your nonprofit with a heart full of promise based on bad economics. Put a ballot in the air, pull out a lighter and burn it. We just give away votes, make them Democrats earn it. 
Politicians don't care because they don't see a need. They won't care until we bleed on the same concrete. We're tearing down the neighborhoods where we live at. If we don't own it, well, let's do something to change that. It didn't change Watts. It ain't doing much now. Watch the philosophers argue while Rome burns down. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. Reload your gun. They're going to do the same thing. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. Reload your gun. They're going to do the same thing. Is it a ballot or a bullet? Let me know. Should I fight or should I pray? Who's my foe? Are they killing with a pistol or a vote? Or maybe it is both. Maybe it is both. Maybe it is both. Maybe it is both. Maybe both. Why stop now? I haven't caught the Holy Ghost yet. Sing a little louder. We can drown out the protest. Rebuilding antebellum. They too busy to listen. I hear disturbing things come from so-called Christians. Quick to justify a man's death because of a criminal record or how a man dressed. Thugs, I guess only perfect people get grace. If that was the Lord's way, there'll be no one in the faith. True flaw, America kills and hides behind the law. They purchase this land with violence but never count the cost. Put a dollar to your ear, you can hear the moaning of a slave. America the Great was built off the labor that they gave. Jefferson and Washington were great peace pursuers. But John Brown was a terrorist and an evildoer. Oh, yes, God bless the American Revolution. But God ain't for all the riots and the looting. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. Reload your gun. We're going to do the same thing. Bang, bang, bang. Bang, bang, bang. Reload your gun. We're going to do the same thing. Is it a ballot or a bullet? Let me know. Should I fight or should I pray? Who's my foe? Are they killing with a pistol or a vote? Or maybe it is both. Maybe it is both. Maybe both. What's your standard? Where you stand? What's your view? What gives you the right for you to think the things that you do? Is it school? Is it news? Is it man's wisdom? Is it religion? Why listen when you make your decisions? It's funny how some people, they use the Lord. Some see him as a pacifist. Some see him with a sword. The Lord who hated sin showed grace to the thief, saved the lowly prostitute from being stoned in the street. He was holy, but he's hung with the sinful, drove the wicked out by flipping over tables in the temple. He took a wrongful death, but yet he remained silent. But he said he's coming back, and he is bringing violence. Many people isolate him just to make him fit their cause, never to involve the greater context at all. So are there two Christs totally unrelated, or maybe it's one Christ, and he's pretty complicated. Pretty complicated. Or maybe it is both. Maybe it is both. Thank you, guys. So that, <laughs> thank you for the late clap. That, uh, that just begins the offense. So you got 25 more minutes of this. Um, but God is gracious, amen, and he's gone, he's, he's with us. Come on, somebody. Um, is there, a, is there, is there a, a witness in the building tonight? <laughs> so um, today we're going to be talking about this idea of what does it look like to be politically engaged. But I want to deal with, Stephanie did a wonderful job of, of, of talking about it. And, and I want to kind of touch on it from a different angle and a different perspective. And the one way that I like to do it is, is in this context of how stories are told and how we formulate our ideas and formulate policies and ethics through how we view people, right? So I'm going to deal with three areas. I want to talk about how we formulate these concepts and these ideas through how we view dignity. Then I'm going to 
talk about how we see compassion or how we use power, but how we should use compassion not through power, through, uh, through our connection and relationship with one another. And lastly, I want to talk about what does it look like to be a unified body. Um, and when we talk about storytelling, um, ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to figure out how does God want us to live, amen? So this is the, this is the normative question when we're dealing with ethics. And we believe that God has answered this question, and John Frame gives an explanation that sometimes when we deal with ethical questions or the, or the identity or the idea of dealing with policy, creating policies, we do it through storytelling, we do it through poetry, narratives, parables, humor, or apocalyptic teachings. Um, the scripture was already mentioned earlier today. Micah 6, 8 gives an, a wonderful example. It says, explain, explains it well. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Um, storytelling does a wonderful job of forming identity. And so you can be filled with good storytellings of, of people that we do. And I think this election season is an example of what bad storytelling is. Because what we do is we see and we create these binaries of individuals that make them seem like they're unredeemable. Good storytelling is an asset that formulates and shapes people's lives and thinking for a while. So one example of great storytelling is when I was around seven years old, I remember my mother telling me something that shaped my life forever. She said, baby, you look good in red. And to this day, red is my favorite color. <laughs> it's so much my favorite color that I would wear red in almost every neighborhood I walked through in California, and I lived in Crip neighborhoods. <laughs> so I was willing to die because my mama told me that I look good in red. Bad storytelling is around that same age uh, when uh, George H. Bush was running against Bill Clinton. I remember my uncle and aunt who had a wonderful marriage, never ever fought. But I remember my uncle voting for George Bush and I remember everybody in my house hating him for about six months. And for some of y'all who understand, I don't have to give this, this context clues, you recognize black people are not supposed to like Republicans apparently. And so therefore, at a young age, I was taught, well, I guess everything Republican is just, is just shifty. I dated a girl in high school. She was fine as all get out. When I found out she was a Republican, we had to break up. I was just like, I just can't, I can't trust you. I don't know. I just don't. But that's bad storytelling because this kind of teaching and thinking promotes ignorance and bigotry within someone, and it's perpetuated until you actually have a, an enlightenment, and that's what happened to me when I became a Christian in college, um, when I started to understand that the binaries given to me were somewhat interrupted. Uh, when we look in the scriptures, we see that policy is instituted before the fall of sin. So there's governance and there's policy and there's rule before sin ever enters the picture. So that means, one, that we recognize that structure, laws, and, and this idea of ethics is, is not a bad thing. It's good. It's how God created us, and he has institutions that govern us. And we see in Genesis 1-1 is that God is over all things, and he created all things for his glory. So first we already see that there's sovereignty, right? And so that God created all things, and all things are submissive to him. And then if we move down to uh, throughout the next various uh, scriptures, we'll see that creation and nature has order. Then we move to verse 26 in chapter 1, and we see that he created human beings in his image, right? 
And so there's subordination even within that because he said, let us make them in our image. So we see order in that. We see governance in that. And if we go later in that particular, that particular scripture, we also see it's not that he just creates image, uh, human beings in his image, but he gives us a task to be cultivators and creators, right? And so this is even a, 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 a job, a structure that we are to be uh, rulers and have dominion over, the, over our occupations, over the tasks that we do, and to be creators and cultivators. And then if you go to chapter 2, verse 18, you see that he's created us for community with one another. And if we move down six verses in 24, we see that there's even structure and governance within our covenants with one another. And so it's not just how he rules over us, it's how we are in connection with one another and how we are to relate to the, to the earth that we, that we work and serve within. And uh, in verse 17 in chapter 2, we see that there's rule on how we to interact with the tree. He says, this is one of the first restrictions. So this is a clear uh, uh, direction of what policy looks like. But then we have bad storytelling in the next chapter with Satan when he enters the picture and he distorts it by communicating this concept and this idea. It's like, no, you know what? God, just, he'll just be jealous. He didn't truly say that you will die. See, he's, 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 in, he's given bad information at this point, and he's trying to change. He's trying to create policies that are, that are not beneficial for those individuals who are citizens of the garden, right? And so what his storytelling promotes is it begins to remove dignity for individuals who are once content with being made in the image of God, now we are created, or now we have discontentment. So now we've removed dignity, then we, and that creates idols. And then it removes dependency on that who created us in the sovereignty. So now we want an inverted power. We no longer want to be ruled. We want to do the ruling. Then there's a third thing. We says it removes us from unity. So it's not only a disunity with God, but it's a disunity with one another and a disunity with the task. So it's not just our personal relationships with God and one another are distorted, but the cultivation we create and it's the systems we build are messed up as well, right? Satan's manipulation in the garden is very similar to how many of our politics and philosophies are created today. We form idols in office, and we feel like they are the solutions and saviors that we need, and we desire power, and we, we create division. And, 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 and a lot of how we see this happening today, and it's, I'll try to move through this quickly, and how we see that we've removed, because we believed in bad storytelling through the Enlightenment, about, by allowing Immanuel Kant's teaching of dualism to create in us this binary that religion shouldn't intersect with every area of life. So our faith shouldn't show, it's like the, the, the concept that you shouldn't, like Christianity shouldn't uh, influence your vote. The reality is, is if you don't vote your, vote your values, you're going to be voting someone else's. And so what we see is uh, in, the early, in, uh, in like the 1960s, we have John F. Kennedy, who was, a, was one of the, uh, the, the first Catholic uh, uh, president, but he makes a very powerful statement that leads kind of like this, 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 uh, this downward spiral of, of how do we see religion impacting our political views. And he said that um, though he was a Catholic, that his faith would have no implication on his political decisions. And from there, what you have is the birth of neutrality, that government should remain neutral in particular areas that allow citizens to determine their own interpretation of the good life. 
Liberals expect neutrality in moral issues, and uh, conservatives expect neutrality in the free market. And so in the 1970s, what you have is liberal neutrality gaining such power and influence that the religious right is created and the Christian coalition and the moral majority. And what happens is now we have these great, these great, these, 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 uh, um, ridiculous uh, pendulums that swing from one side to the other and has created these amazing binaries. And now what you have, now, now what I don't want to communicate is that political parties are inherently evil. You, we need political parties to get things done. I think what I would love to do is just castigate the systems that we ourselves oftentimes allow ourselves to be uh, uh, enslaved to in which we not only allow us to have partisanship and policies lead our principles, but we never feel convicted by uh, uh, being prostituted out to these political parties. And so what you have is extreme liberals and you have uh, 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 extreme right, which create policies that are dangerous um, for all people. And Carl Ellis makes this statement, and he's a, a theologian in anthropology. He says, if you marry a political party, it will pimp you. And that's what we've seen, I think, in a lot of today's, so not assuming that everybody in this room is, is, is anti-Trump, but there's a large contingency of people who are, were part of the GOP who are very confused at the state of the conservative party because what has happened is, is they felt like their party has, has become fractured, right? And, and part of that is the evangelicals have married this, politi this political party blindly. And so wherever that political party goes, you must go. Same thing with the civil rights movement. Most of the people from the civil rights movement married the, the left, and when the left decided to, dis to, to, to support uh, things that were contradictory to their beliefs, guess what? You're stuck with them. And so now you're finding yourselves in a place, in a position where you're, you're disjointed because you feel like your faith doesn't match your politics. And so the AND campaign, which is the organization that I helped create, is hopefully an answer to that. Because as an individual who has strong conviction and believes that there is a subversive attempt to attack the family structure and there's a subversive attempt on religion, I have a strong, I have a strong conviction to say, you know what? No, I believe that the Bible is pertinent to every issue of life. I believe that it should be that we should be able to, to, to vote with our values. I believe that we should be able to, to have public discourse, very similar to what Paul did in, in Acts 17. But I also believe that as an individual who grew up in pretty rough neighborhoods, who've seen marginalization, who understands the plight of a particular group of people, that I have compassion for issues of justice. And so I can't marry a political party because I recognize that I believe that both parties get things right and they both get things wrong. And so for us, what we believe is not to, de 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 uh, de to discredit or to uh, demoralize political parties, but it's to de-emphasize them and to say that as Christians, how do we transcend political parties by making sure that we keep people honest, by making sure that we posture ourselves as people who, one, have compassion and conviction. Right? And I believe that's a lot of what we see in the Gospels. We believe that there's been a false choice given to us as Christians for those people who feel the same as I do, where you land on both sides of a conviction and compassion. So 
So let me move to these next couple parts. Uh, dignity. So now that I've kind of set this up, how do we begin to work through this concept of dignity in the Scripture, right? Um, dignity in politics, better yet, but through the lens of Scripture. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a wonderful story that I think is, that is very pertinent to this particular topic. When we talk about creating dignity, um, I grew up with identity conflicts. I grew up in areas where I struggled because I was the only African-American. I grew up in areas where I was in poor communities and I felt like people didn't like me because they thought I was trying to act white, which I don't still don't understand what that is. But I had identity crisis. And there's another individual that I admire and a lot of you guys know, and he just passed away recently. His name is Muhammad Ali. And he tells this story about how growing up in America, he just never understood why he couldn't get a hold of this concept of dignity, right? And so he tells a story about having conversations with his mom, and this is like in the 1960s. And he's like, I used to ask my mom, why is every painting of Jesus white? Why does he always have blonde hair and blue eyes? Why every time I look at the angels in the paintings, they are all white? And he's like, mama, wasn't no black angels in heaven? (laughs) And his mama said, well, baby, they were taking the pictures. (laughs) (laughs) And then he goes on. He goes on and he just goes on this list and this tirade. He's like, Miss America's white, Miss Universe is white. He says the, the ugly duckling's black and angel food's white and deviled cake is black. And he, he just and he goes into this hilarious analogy, just this this tirade about Tarzan, how Tarzan's white man swinging from tree to tree in Africa and uh, and dominating. <laughs> Talking to animals, talking to all the animals. And he said, Africans been there for centuries, can't talk to no animals. <laughs> He's like, this is hell. He's like. And then he talks about how he, uh, he goes to the Olympic and he, and, he, and he wins the gold medal in the Olympics. And he's like, well, you know what? I know I'm somebody now because I didn't fought all of America's enemies and I won on this platform. So I'm going to go back home and I'm going to get some dignity, right? And so he goes back to his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky, and he sits in a, a diner that is, you know, that is not segregated, or that is not, is de- that's not desegregated, that is segregated. I said it right the first time. Uh, and, he's, and he tries to order food, and he says, the, the woman walks up to him, and he's like, you know, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'd like to order some food. And she says, well, we don't serve Negro here. And he's like, well, that's good, because I don't eat them. And so <laughs> he goes on. And he doesn't get served. <laughs> but then he goes on this, this description. He says, I, I, I grew up in this, this, this Christian country. Uh, I went to their Christian churches. And I, I fought for this Christian nation. And, got it, and I still am nobody. He says, and at that point, I realized I was going to be a Muslim ever since. And that broke my heart because that's part of my story. And I think that's a lot of people who in this room can probably relate to or know people who can relate to that. And the truth of the matter is, is the reason why that's so relatable is because the church has done a terrible job of affirming the dignity of people of color for centuries. And so what does it look like when we talk about the creation of policy, right, or affirming dignity in people um, and making sure we, we take it back to Genesis? Because if we're taking it back to Genesis, we recognize that all people are created in the image of God and that we were all created, as we see here, that there's a creation, there's fall, there's redemption, and there's restoration. But if we recognize that we are all created 
And we're, we're, we're trying to get to that place of not only were we just created to reflect him, we were created to reflect him in our relationships, but we were also created to reflect him in the things we make and the systems we create. But if things were broken, as the fall communicates, then it's not just our relationship with God that is fractured. It's our relationship with one another that is fractured, but it's also how we create. So that means systems and structures are, are broken, right? And that needs restoring and restoration. There's obviously groups of people in here who are great Samaritans who want to do a lot of great work. But as it said, at some point, we got to stop, we continue to applaud the great Samaritan, but we got to start asking the question, why is so much bad happening on Damascus Road? And who's going to address these issues? Oftentimes, the reason why we get to these types of places is because we do not progress through compassion, we progress through power. Our obsession with power in our storytelling, in our policies, corrupts the image of God in us. It also wants to assume the worst in those who oppose us or who are different from us. It leads us to believe that we are the center of our own story and others play meaningless characters that are easily disposable. Power in this country or in other countries leads to tribalism. It leads to blind nationalism. It leads to the Indian Removal Act. It led to slavery. It led to the Jim Crow laws. It leads to the prison industrial complex. It leads to war on drugs. It leads to gang violence. It leads to abortion clinics disproportionately amounts in African-American communities. Christopher J.H. Wright, in his book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, and this is an amazing observation on power and how power has an effect. He says, he says, oppression is by far the major recognized cause of poverty. The Old Testament asserts, as well as modern analysis, demonstrate that only a tiny fraction of poverty is accidental. Most people are made poor by the actions of others, directly or indirectly. Poverty is caused, and the primary cause is the exploitation of others by those whose own selfish interests are served by keeping others poor. However, we know that Christ used his power in ways that created progress through compassion. And as people in this room, when you see dignity in other folks, for those who have power and influence, how do you use that for the benefit of other people? Amen. Good storytelling is liberating. We've talked about dignity. We've talked about how do we use compassion over power. And now we're going to talk about unity. And this Tempe, I've met the pastors. I've met Ricardo, Jim. And this is, it seems like a, a pretty diverse church. Um, most definitely racially. I've seen different people from different Um, I was going to try to figure it out. Um, and I go to a church that is, is quite diverse myself. It's about, it's a majority black church, but it's a large amount of white, uh, Hispanic, and, and Asian. And um, one of the beautiful things about our church is that it, you see when you walk in, it's almost confusing. It's like a Michael Jackson concert. It's just like, what? <laughs> what am I? 
What am I looking at? Rest in peace, Mike. Um, but the worship is, is an example of it. We go from acoustic guitar to Fred Hammond. I mean, we're just, we're just schizo. We're like a really schizo church. Sometimes that's good and sometimes it's, it's problematic. I'm like, I don't like this. I don't like this. Let's, <laughs> let's just stick to one. But something happened that tested the fabric of that diversity, of that unity, right? So when Mike Brown was murdered, we saw that there was a lot of vitriol happening on Facebook. As Jim talked about, we know all good ideas are birthed on Facebook. So there was a lot of ridiculous rhetoric being tossed back and forth on Facebook. And uh, they told me I had to stop, and then I was like, all right, cool, I'll stop being that dude. <laughs> but, but they brought us in. <laughs> that's, that's a true story. They brought us in. But no, that's not true. But they did bring in a group of 50, it was like 15 influencers, people who were the most vocal uh, about this issue from both sides of the spectrum. It was a police officer who uh, had some strong opinions. There were individuals like myself and others who had other uh, opinions. But it, it, was a, it was a healthy discussion. It wasn't like, it wasn't ridiculous. But, but one thing I did realize is that we weren't as close as I thought we were, right? Like, and the problem was is that what we had was great proximity, but we didn't have great authenticity. Like there were people who were willing to be around each other, but when tension and trauma and tragedy happened, it really tested the fabric of that church. And though proximity is good, but if we don't get past just the passing of each other through the halls, and we don't get to the point where we can really get to love one another and put aside our preferences in order to serve and love one another, then we don't have true unity. It's Jesus, all Jesus. Um, because oftentimes what we, what we want to see and what we want to do, and this is an analogy you've probably heard before, is like you have salads and you have people who put like lettuce, onions, and carrots, and you have, you know, some of you weird people put fruit in there. And then somebody, eat, you eat that, you get a, a very diverse taste, and a, a wonderful palate. But then some people just come in and you just spread ranch all over the thing. <laughs> and it's just like, it's just like a ranch plate now. It's just like, what is this? I don't even... It's crazy. And ranch is white, too, so I'm just trying to... <laughs> just, that, was, that was not a subtle, that was not subtle at all. Um, but another thing that uh, I learned about uh, how there was such polarizing perspectives on politics and how policies and how should police and how should we handle criminal reform, and a lot of it was because we had two varying perspectives of who Jesus was, right? Some of us wanted a Jesus who only cared about police brutality but didn't care about uh, uh, abortion. Some of us only, we, we, we only had a God who cared about abortion but didn't care about police brutality. Some of us wanted a Jesus who cared about the poor but didn't care about the corporations and companies that create poverty. Some of us wanted a Jesus who would send us to Africa and do missionary for those poor folk over there, but we don't care about the colonization and the prostituting of the resources and the people, though, that happened for centuries and decades. Some of us wanted a Jesus who only cared about our personal relationship, but not the implications of what that personal relationship meant in a communal environment. So my, my question is, how do we view Jesus in this room? 
Because oftentimes we just want a God who fits our agenda. And we, we don't give people on the, like, we would rarely think that there's a, like, for those who are conservatives, like, there can't be real Christian Democrats. I mean, like, for real? Like, really? And I'm going to tell you, there are people on the other side who are like, I mean, I know they go to church and they have all the rhetoric, but there can't be, like, those, cons- are they really Christian conservatives? Like, they seem to lack so much compassion. These are, because we assume the worst about one another. And we don't think there's anything good in, uh, anything that good that comes out of, uh, uh, of Nazareth. Amen. So there's three points that I want to, I want to, I just want to share that I think will help us deal with this idea of the polarization of politics and creating unity, dignity, and compassion. One is we must deal with truth um, before we get to reconciliation. Like, you know, uh, one of the, the evidences in the case study in my church was that people were willing to just assimilate, right? You wanted people to assimilate and to, to put on the culture, but when it came time to really dig into the dirt of one another's lives, we didn't really deal with the truth of how we got to this place where young innocent or young uh, unarmed men are being shot down in the street. No matter where you, like, this is not something that's new in African-American community. And even if you don't understand it, how do you posture yourself to a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ who's struggling with this? Do you automatically say your, your, your feelings are unjustified and I don't want to talk to you about it? Or do you say, you know what, I may not understand and I may not even agree, but let's have a conversation. Help me to understand why you feel this way, right? I'm that way. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why people love Israel so much. I'm like, okay, help me understand this, truly, because I'm, I need to learn. <laughs> I need to learn. Um, we also, but, and this is for my, 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 my brothers and sisters of, of, of color, is that we'll, we love to say, all right, we got to deal with the truth before we can have true, authentic relationship. But the other thing is, is like, truth without reconciliation is condemnation. And a lot of us, I, don't, I feel like sometimes we don't really want reconciliation because we want to hold something over our brothers and sisters. And that's a dangerous place to be. Uh, it's like we want to we own this all. Like, Black folks feel like they just want to be the progenitors of all, like, pain and suffering. They're like, they, like, I don't want that for my life. I'm willing for other people to take that. If you want that, you can have that. <laughs> I recognize people, but I also recognize that African Americans in this country, along with other folks, have, have a special pain. But guess what? Do we believe that the gospel is great enough to really heal that? Do we truly believe that? And are we willing to have real authentic conversations that deal with that? The second thing is, is my brother John, um, John Anwacheco was a pastor in Atlanta. He makes this statement. So we're talking about truth before reconciliation. Um, but he makes this statement that he says, God is just not merely content with a ceasefire. He wants to make enemies family. And uh, is that our true calling? Is that our true desire, right? Do we really want that? Because if so, what we would do is, as Henry Newman says, we wouldn't force change to happen, but we would create environments where change can happen. And so are we creating spaces where we can have these conversations where people can say 
ignorant things where people can ask the hard questions and we still love you afterwards because if we're family, then that's the stuff that we do. You allow people to say things and no matter if it's politically ignorant, if it's racially ignorant, whatever, right? If you're going for the, the, the Cleveland Indians when you know that the Cubs should be winning this thing, <laughs> there's grace for that too, amen? <laughs> I got one person. So, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, what I would challenge us to do is to uh, appreciate and not appropriate one another. Um, when I went to, uh, I went to, when I, before I went to Africa, uh, I used to see Africa as like this just large landmass of people that just lived. I didn't see them as diverse individuals who lived in a continent made up of di many different countries. And my view of them was very limited. Um, oftentimes, when I, I, I catch myself even today, when I talk about Asians, I just say Asians, right? But I, that's not dignifying in a sense. You just lump people together. And I'm even learning that white people, you have a culture and you're different. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're mono, like even white folks aren't monolithic. As much as we like to think they are, there's different types of white folk. Just like there's different type of black people, right? But oftentimes what we want to do is you just keep create these monoliths of people and we appropriate their culture rather than getting to know them and love them for the image bearers that they are. Um, Spike Lee, one of my favorite movies of all time, is, is called Do the Right Thing. And there's a powerful scene in that movie where he's having a conversation in a pizza parlor with his coworker, who is a white gentleman, Italian. And... He's, and the Italian gentleman is always saying the word nigga. And so Spike Lee's like, uh, bro, who's your favorite basketball player? He said, Magic Johnson. He's like, who's your favorite comedian? He, Eddie Murphy. He's like, who's your favorite entertainer? And he's like, Prince. He's like, then why are all your favorite people niggas? Because what he's done is he's separated the idea that these people who can entertain me are different from the people that I live next door to. That's appropriation. Are we really, truly willing to see people, all people, you know, Obama and uh, Cornell West or Colin Powell and Mike Brown equally as image bearers, right? Is that how we view people? Are we, able to, are we willing to see the William Lloyd Garrisons and the Donald Trumps as image bearers? They're all image bearers. We're all image bearers. Some are more stupid than others, but we're all image bearers. <laughs> Lastly, I think and a, a perfect example of, 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 of seeing what it looks like to not only address the relationship with God, the relationship with one another, but also the way that systems are created and oftentimes broken, is the interaction with Jesus and the prostitute in John 8. And uh, there, here, here, we, here, we, here we see is a, 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 a criminal justice system that is somewhat unfair because it doesn't penalize the rich. It doesn't penalize people who uh, benefit off the backs of the poor, but it also creates prostitution in a sense. So now what we have is this woman who is about to be stoned to death, and they had every right to do it, but Jesus intervenes. And not only does he intervene by challenging the system, right, by saying, you know, you without sin cast the first stone, by putting the the, the onus on them to say, are you 
in better standing with God or the law than this individual. And he intervenes with how corrupted the system is. He does a wonderful job of dealing with her personal relationship with God. He says, now go and sin no more. I believe this is a perfect picture of what it looks like for us as Christians to think about policy and relations in, 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 in the context of the gospel. It's not just the personal relationship. We say, you know what, let's just deal with the sinner and everything will fix itself. No, it's recognizing that we live in a very messed up, just jointed world and things won't be perfect until we get to heaven. So until then, we're, we're dealing in this restoration project where we're trying to bring individuals who are enemies with God back to reconciliation with him, but we're also addressing the systems that create amazing obstacles for people to see the image-bearing God creation in them and in the world. Thank you. All right, now we're going to have a time of uh, text-in questions. The instructions are right there, but before uh, we, we have the, the panel and we bring the panel up, uh, one more question to discuss around the table. Uh, I, I basically just want you to finish the beginning of what we had as the title of the, the night, Imagine If. So you go around the table and just say, imagine if, and then you fill in the blank as it relates to politics. So go ahead and have that discussion, send in some questions, and we'll talk in just a moment. Let's talk to him. We would do dirt just because of peer pressure. Two knuckleheads, yeah, we ran the streets together. Just to impress the homies, we would do whatever. But before we get to the questions, um, I wanted to just uh, acknowledge who's on the panel now. Um, so we have Wayne Winter over here. So <clears throat> tonight is uh, the fruit of tonight is essentially a partnership between Redemption Tempe and Redemption Alhambra. And so Wayne being the pastor at uh, Redemption Alhambra, he and I were going to moderate tonight. Uh, Wayne, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you thought that this was an important thing that we do? Yeah. Well, basically everything that's been said tonight is, is why this was an important thing to do. On Facebook, it's been like out of control. If you've been on Facebook, you just want to like turn it off because people are saying like crazy things and people are pulling out guns and knives on each other. You know, so, you know, I felt that having a, a perspective on how to trek through politics that was just centered around the gospel, not centered around, which I think is like a worldly way of even viewing these things, is the way how everything else has been going on out there. And like we have, like as a church, we haven't been saying, hey, listen, this is how we should be engaging. So why not sit down, have a conversation about what it looks like to really in, engage from a heart of the gospel and not let the world dictate what it should look like for us, so. And the next person on the stage is Katie Thompson, who also works for the Center for Public Justice, along with Stephanie. Um, and um, what, what we wanted to do, I want to set up a, the first question going to you uh, to introduce yourself and kind of the significance of why we have you on the stage. 
Um, a couple years ago, we in this congregation, we, we decided to do something called the Tempe Bike Gang. Anyone remember that? Yeah. So what we did is we saw, we saw that there was, uh, on the television, we saw that there was a guy who was almost beaten to death by this gang of motorcyclists who surrounded his car, about 80 different motorcycles, and slowed him down, pulled him out of the car, and beat him almost to death. And we were watching this, and we were thinking, what would it look like to reimagine the mob mentality for the common good? So we decided to do this thing called the Tempe Bike Gang, and we got everyone on our little bicycles, like 50 deep, and we went all around the city doing things for the good of our neighbor. We were picking up dog poop in the dog parks. We'd go into restaurants. We'd pay for people's meals. We'd have a feast with folks who were experiencing homelessness. We, we would uh, do all these different things. We, we gave these awards out to people who had awesome front yards called the Awesome Front Yard Awards. So we'd knock, they'd have 50 people just clapping for them and those sorts of things. But one of the things we decided to do, we thought would be good for the good of the city is if we had kind of a civic education question, uh, you know, contest in the park where we would just take random people off the street and if they could answer questions about the city, they would win prizes. Well, one of the things that we asked was, can, how many uh, city council members can you name? And we thought it'd be kind of hard for some people, but there was not a single person that we could find who knew more than one city council member. And we were kind of scoffing at them until we looked at around ourselves and we said, do you know any? No, I don't know any. And, and we realized that we were a pretty poorly civically educated group of people and city apparently because we couldn't find anyone. So my question for you, Katie, is first off, introduce yourself, tell us what you do for the Center for Public Justice, and then tell us how we could move forward in growing in our civic education and just understanding the issues in our city. Well, thank you so much for being here, um, especially during Game 7 of the World Series. The Cubs are winning, if anyone was wondering. So, yeah. um, you, you just, like, infuriated people who I'm are T-voting it. But I can't <laughs> confirm or deny that, but last I heard. Um, That's okay. So um, my name's Katie, and I'm the editor of sharedjustice.org at the Center for Public Justice. And Shared Justice is our initiative for 20 and 30-somethings. Um, for millennials, and I always say the absolute worst thing you can do to a group of millennials is talk about millennials. So, um, but I am one, so I'm gonna go ahead and do it. Uh, and kinda, I, I would say the group um, that we're working with are primarily, well, they're all Christian millennials, and they're all people who really have a heart for justice issues. They have a passion um, for their neighbors, for loving their neighbors. Um, but they don't have roots for that, that passion. Um, it's something Stephanie mentioned, this idea of rooted citizenship. Um, and I love the framing of imagine if or reimagining because I think um, that's so huge in helping um, particularly Christian 20 and 30-somethings um, reimagine what it means to be a Christian in public life. Uh, often I hear, you know, if the church would just be the church and do its job, then we wouldn't have this injustice on our hands, you know foster care, human trafficking, and we could just be the church, um, it wouldn't be there. And we really encourage um, young people to think, you know, to broaden that idea. Um, yes, the church is vitally important, um, but reimagine 
the other institutions at play, um, go government. God has a good purpose for government, um, for, as well as the church, as the family. So um, we really encourage people to try to broaden their, their framework for thinking about a lot of these issues. Yeah. So how do we get educated? How do we, how do we take the first steps um, and, and, and learning? Um, I'll answer that through a story. So um, one, I would say Share Justice, just a shameless plug. Um, it's written entirely by uh, college students, young professionals, really wrestling with and thinking about um, these ideas of faith and politics and justice. Um, but one, one example I would give uh, is a pastor who has been a contributor for Share Justice for several years. Um, and I, probably two years ago, um, asked him to write about payday lending. Um, which is a topic and an issue that CPJ has done a bit of work on. Um, and he said, okay. So he started researching it and, and um, you know, working on the issue. And he told me that he, you know, realized that there are a lot of people in his congregation who are coming to him, um, you know, seeking assistance for rent, for paying the bills. Um, and when he dug a little deeper, he was able to understand, you know, actually what's going on here is that they're trapped in a payday loan um, in his state. Uh, it's a 390% interest rate on a two-week loan. Um, so when he dug a little deeper about, you know, what's actually going on here, um, it became something he couldn't really put down. Um, so it was the initial, you know, research uh, and just a really cool story of his engagement. Um, he came to D.C. and did some um, advocacy and met with legislators with us and um, was able to share his story, went back to his congregation, um, led uh, informational sessions about, you know, what is a payday loan, things like that. Um, so I think that's just a great example of, you know, one, listening um, to people in your, in your communities um, and then really doing the work of, broadening awareness um, in action. Sounds great. Let's uh, throw some questions up there. Do you want to take it from here, Wayne? Sure. Okay. So you look on, on Facebook, you look on the computers, you, there is tons and tons and tons of info out there, right, concerning politics, candidates and a lot of people don't know where do you go to to get some trusted sources to help inform you so that you can learn so that you can grow inside these areas so I'm at Stephanie what are some directions people can go to get trusted sources of information to grow in the knowledge and understanding of of how to walk inside the stuff that we're talking about Sure, so um, I want to tell you about my favorite graduate school class, which was called How to Lie with Statistics. Mm. <laughs> right? Okay. Is there a book? There's a book called How to Lie with Statistics. You can go find it. Um, but, you know, basically uh, what it puts out there is, you know, pretty much most national news sources when there's some kind of stat that's thrown out there, um, there's a reason the stat's out there, and generally you should not trust this stat. Right. Now, this is not true when you get to the level of things that are like peer-reviewed journals, right? So when you start to look at studies, right, if they are done by organizations that, you know, basically people are vetting each other, saying you're credible, 
you know, you have to be credible to get in there. Those kinds of stats are ones, right, you want to focus on. So it's actually a way to look at your news sources is who they're actually saying the information's from. Um, and that will really help you uh, a little bit as a, just like a top line, if you want to just use this as a heuristic to like really quickly decide. Like if every source that they cite is BuzzFeed. <laughs> okay, so those are those types, those types of things. I would say there's, there's some other ways to think about this question, right? So depending on what you're looking for, right? So if what you're looking for is information about the community in which you live, the issues that are here, you actually still have a local newspaper. Mm -hmm. um, people who do really beat journalism that covers things like education and things that matter to this community, um, you should look at those. <laughs> um, and you know, I, all my journalist friends would tell you you should pay for those um, because their ability to continue to serve this information in a free and fair way really depends on people who will pay for it because all the incentives right now are to figure out how we do stories that people will click on. Um, and so, you know, there's this piece there. Um, the other piece would be looking at um, sources of news that tend to not have a overt partisan agenda, right? Um, so this is a place where you can start to look at, um, you know, I mean, we could start listing and I'm not gonna do all that work, but um, spending the time to say, hey, this is organized by a public group, this is organized by a not partisan organization, this is organized by some government source um, that doesn't have a political agenda behind it, but it actually has an independent factor to it. Those kinds of sources are ones where, but you have to recognize that that's gonna take a little bit more time than something that's generally gonna show up in your Facebook feed. Next question. What does social justice mean? <laughs> Uh, in quotes. You want to take that show? I, don't, I, I honestly don't even know, really. I think it, so, social justice, I, so I, I, it stems from the issues of uh, justice in the context of issues of sociology. So how does, um, how does issues within uh, justice, whether it be policies, affect people groups? or how does it affect uh, our relationships and how we interact with one another. So there's obviously spiritual justice, right? So we know that the ultimate redemption uh, comes from our relationship, our spiritual connection to God. But then there's this idea, of we also have responsibilities and how we interact with one another with, on, within this earth. And so how does um, our spiritual implications how does our spiritual life impact this idea of how do we do life with one another, how we operate within systems, how we operate within structures, and the idea of justice within that is we are trying to redeem um, or bring justice, uh, not necessarily equality, but bring justice to these issues so that there is redemption within, like I say, education or criminal reform or uh, uh, welfare, immigration, whatever it is. So it's more of the earthly, uh, the earthly justice between interaction of human beings on this earth rather than 
um, spiritual. Is that a good answer? I don't know. I'm looking at Stephanie and saying, okay, there you go. I got the approval from Stephanie. Okay. Stephanie, would you, would you briefly uh, differentiate, because I know you guys use the word public justice quite a bit. Would you mind telling us what that means? Yeah, sure. The, um, so public justice is really what we talk about as sort of the norm for the work of government. And in this case, the work of government and citizens together in this type of political community, in this type of nation. And that really means government that uh, is attentive to the fact that not everything is the government's, right? That we live lives in communities that are part of the social order, like our families, our churches, our schools, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the government has a responsibility to promote a just social order, a just society, so those institutions can do their work well, right? Um, and government ought not usurp all of those responsibilities, right? It would be a terrible thing if the government told every parent what time their kid had to go to bed. Dumb example, but um, public justice is also looking at the diversity of worldview beliefs that we have in a nation and saying that the government doesn't pick winners, right? So essentially, something that allows for freedom of differing views and protects that in law. So upholds the ability of us to disagree with one another all the way down and not kill each other over those differences. So that is what public justice is. So when we say we're the center for public justice, that's what we're promoting. Um, we, just to give you guys a heads up so you're not antsy, we're going to go late tonight. We're going to go, uh, we won't, you know, go to midnight or anything like that, but we'll probably go to about 8.20 or so. Um, you can feel free to bring your kids in here. It is 8 o'clock, so if you have kids, go ahead and pick them up from childcare. Bring them in here. Um, we might bring them up on stage and field a few questions to them, but we're going to be around here for about, uh, for about 20 minutes. Go get the kiddos, bring them in. And uh, let's go ahead and throw another question up on there. And all the best answers are going to be given yeah. when, you, when you leave. <laughs> That's right. Okay. <clears throat> A lot of times when we start talking about these type of topics, the, the question or statement constantly comes up concerning a separation between church and state. So that's the question. Should there be separation between church and state? Should we just sit back and be like, well, let the government do what they're going to do, we'll pray? Um, that question, I'll, I'll go to show with that one. Oh, wow, okay. Um, <laughs> well, I, I, I'll just give the history 101 answer, <laughs> is that uh, the separation of church and state was, is actually was, was created to benefit the church. And so, because you don't want another Church of England, right? You don't want there to be where the church makes decisions uh, or where the government rules the, the church and makes the church create uh, policies that they don't themselves don't believe or make them maneuver in ways that I think aren't beneficial or even in line with the gospel. So to some degree, yes, I, I, I will say that it's, it's helpful and it's beneficial. I do... And I'm a, and I'm and I'm kind of be evasive in a little bit. I do believe that oftentimes the church, as an institution, tr depends on government a little bit too much, in ways that I don't think is helpful. Um, but I do think that um, there are ways. I do believe that the church should be engaged in politics, 
And so I don't know if that question is meaning like the actual institution of the church being separated from the government in a legal way or should the church not be engaged in politics in general. But I think the overall question in the sense that it's separated from the state is a good thing so that it's, it's not liable to, it's not uh, ruled by the state, but also do feel like the church has a responsibility to be engaged in political issues, uh, to inform its congregation on how to be enlightened on political issues, uh, to care for, to, to, but this is the thing also is that Jesus chose the church as the vehicle for which he's gonna bring change and revolution, right? Not necessarily through government, not necessarily through the military. And so I think the church has an onus to, to really get its hands dirty in a lot of areas that we oftentimes hope that government and welfare and, and other things can do when we are called to be that light and that institution to make change, so. And I, I wanna jump in here too. Um, so to go back to the thing I said about public justice, right? So, so first of all, separation of church and state is like this massively misunderstood concept. So I could give a whole nother hour talking about this. So I'm gonna try and like not do that to you because you know, kids are gonna come back in and they'll be like, that lady's still talking. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, uh, we think about this as um, something that government has a responsibility to sort of create a fake neutral, right? That we take off our deepest convictions as humans. And that is not just as Christians, that's all of the citizens who we share this society with have deep life-orienting views, whether those are religious beliefs or other identity claims that they make, right? We all have these deeply held convictions that are in disagreement with one another. And Separation of church and state as a phrase gets tossed around as the government has a responsibility to be fake neutral, right? As though those things are invisible or as though all those differences are actually just secularism, right? So rather than have any religion, we're gonna have none of those things in how we do our life together. We would argue instead that government has a responsibility to pay attention to those deep differences and protect the ability to have those deep disagreements because religion, for example, is not just a way of worship, but it's a way of life. And you have to think of, this is hard for us as Christians. So like, take your brain and go to think about Muslim immigrant communities instead of our community when we think about this, right? Think about how totalizing a worldview is there. And then the injustice, if government essentially says, every time you step outside of your house, you can't, and here's a list, right? So separation of church and state in terms of the original concept shows exactly right in the history lesson. One, to protect the church um, from you know government basically saying, here, we're picking a winner, or we're gonna tell you which theology is good. Um, instead is one that leaves space for us to have deeply different confessional beliefs. And government has a responsibility to allow those beliefs to be what orients our engagement in society. This is called pluralism. So it's a, a job of government to uphold a pluralistic society, the conditions where it doesn't try and smooth over all these differences, but it allows those differences to contribute fully and completely, and at the same time, help us not kill each other over those differences. And just to, so Wayne and I reserve the right to jump in pastorally. So um, 
This pertaining to the church, one of the things I think it's really important to differentiate what they both hit at is that these are different institutions and one of these institutions should not be over the other. You shouldn't have the church run in the government nor the government run in the church. Um, they're separate institutions that have distinct purposes. Um, if you want to reflect on this biblically, look at uh, um, Romans 12 and Romans 13. You'll see the gathered church and its role, but Romans 13, the role, role of the government, but both of them are spoken about uh, in positive terms for the promotion of good, uh, the, the, the pushing against evil. Um, and, um, and so th I think it's important to note that institutionally there are limits to what the church can and should do. Like we can't tell you who to vote for. Um, and um, we, there's also some things that we should probably not coercively use the power that we have, the literal power that's making my no voice amplified um, to just get our whatever our opinions are out there but what we do say as a church across the board is that all of life is all for Jesus and that every aspect of life should be shaped by this story here and so that everything from work to family to politics is a part of our discipleship and how we live out our relationship with God and love our neighbor. So therefore, I sincerely think it would be pastoral malpractice to not engage in some way to say, um, how do we as disciples of Christ engage in this part of the world? So let's go ahead and throw up another question up there. Um, you mind reading that, man? My, my vision's not doing too well. <clears throat> okay. The question is, how do we influence the parties that we feel that we are a part of without being married to those parties? So um, first, I want people to actually say with their, raise your hand, you actually are part of a political party. You chose a political party and you're active in that political party in some way, raise your hand. Okay, so there's like 25 of us in the room. Okay, so this, this is actually uh, the point I wanna make about this problem. For everyone who didn't raise your hand, um, you might be uh, a person who's like, you know, I'm going to be married to a political party if I go into it, and so I'm not doing it. I would say that's probably not the chief reason you're not part of a political party. Um, I think probably more of us in that category are uh, pox on both your houses, people. Neither of you fit me, I'm not gonna. But here's what happened, right? A whole bunch of people who felt that same way left the parties, the two major parties, and just the whole moderate middle of both parties just got carved out. So. There's almost no, for example, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, which is the home of Blue Dog Democrats, which is like, so I went to college before I knew Democrats who were pro-choice. Every Democrat, everyone I grew up with, everyone I went to school with was a pro-life Democrat, right? Some of you are like, what? I didn't even know that existed. Um, but there's like no Blue Dogs in the Democratic Party anymore, right? Very few folks who are in that but it used to be a third of the party, right? So when we left the party, um, we came to a place where the parties were able to just become more and more polarized. So I, I 
I understand, and I think you're right about the being uh, held in a party sway and, you know, the being, uh, you know, prostituted by parties. I think that is an accurate, accurate cultural diagnosis um, for people who are closer to 40 and up. I think if you are younger than 40, it's actually the danger is you abdicated and you left the party uh, and there's no moderating force within the structures anymore. So I would actually encourage folks to go back to a party and help it be more, uh, help, it, help it be more better, <laughs> help, help it be more lined up um, with what we want to see. Because I think the danger is, is there is not so much being held in its sway, it's that there aren't any reasonable people in the room um, asking, hey, why aren't we people who can be for this and that, not just we're anti this and for that. It, so can we start our own? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think that there's, um, I, yes. So, so Jim knows this. So the Center for Public Justice works on electoral reform. Um, and one of the things that I think is very important for us, particularly in this season as a nation, is to think about reforming the way our local electoral politics is done. Um, so we have more political parties and proportional representation. Minneapolis-St. Paul has done this. It took them 20 years to get there. They worked with a national organization called Fair Vote, um, which has people all over uh, the country. Um, the fun fact on this is the, the one of the heads of Fair Vote is the basis from Nirvana. So if you're a Gen Xer, I just made that sound super cool. Um, <laughs> now you want to be part of Fair Vote. Um, but you know what they did in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and it was Christians and you know uh, the Socialist Party and all kinds of other you know kind of political parties that were small. But basically, it ends up so it, the. Uh, candidates have to be much more clear about their platforms because it's a lot more competitive. Your primary is structured in such a way that you're voting um, and you end up with rank choice runoff. So like the top three candidates are then the candidates that are on the ballot um, in the general. And so it requires then folks to be sensitive to not just running for the interest of only the people they represent, but for their whole community. I think that this model, we need to actually embrace in our local communities, do it. It's gonna take a while. Um, and then we need to do this at the House of Representatives in the United States. Um, and we need to do that because that's gonna get rid of gerrymandering. I don't think there's any incentives to get rid of gerrymandering in the House of Representatives right now. Um, but if we have proportional representation within states, where folks actually have to not have um, politics that only, t you know, you win by 51%, so now we only pay attention to the majority, and who cares about the other 49% of people who lived here who didn't want it? Um, I think we have an opportunity there, but we've got to get our feet wet doing it locally so we actually have vision for what this is going to look like and can do the hard work. I actually think this task, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but if you're younger than me, I hope you live long enough to see this happen. I think that I will not. Um, but locally, it only took the people in Minneapolis, St. Paul, 20 years to take you guys a lot less. Mm. Yeah.
So uh, I do agree. I think political party is important, and hopefully I didn't misrepresent because you, when I when I mean you, you need to be a part of a political party to, in order to get things done. That's how um, things are done in this country. Obviously, when I uh, mentioned not being married, it's because of the <coughs> polarization of the of political parties now. When people marry and marrying to the extreme sense that when uh, that left or that right, that, that when that when that party swings so far left that you know that there are things within my conscience that I cannot promote, and you still follow that anyway, that's a problem. And I think that's where you begin to say, you know what? Though I align myself with this political party, I'm going to speak out. Uh, that doesn't mean. I have to vote everything Republican or have everything Democratic or whatever side you line on. But you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna castigate what's happening and you're gonna make wise informed decisions. And one example is the gentleman who helped start the uh, AND campaign with me. He's a lawyer and he ran to be a delegate in 2008. No, 2012. He ran to be a delegate in 2012 and he's a Democrat and he won and he went to uh, Charlotte and in Charlotte. They were. They had two different votes. They voted to take God out of uh, uh, of the uh, the platform, and then also they voted to take uh, to, for gay marriage to be a part of the platform. And what he noticed was there was such strong vitriol towards both, and that they just kind of subversively passed through the gay marriage platform without a real vote. He was. He had a great concern because he said there was a lot of Christians that were with him that were like, "Hold up, we didn't even get to vote on this." But the, the party said, you know what, this is the platform. We don't want to look bad. We don't want to make Obama look bad because specifically they tried to avoid the, the black Christian urban vote so that uh, in order for that to, uh, to get passed. So when he got back and he said, you know what, I need to build a coalition of Christians who are democratic, right, but aren't afraid to speak to the issues. So my only suggestion is that, yes, yeah, stay within those parties, try to create reform, but recognize it's not going to be easy. And there are going to be moments when you have to speak out and you're going to look like the idiot within the group. And I think both sides right now are dealing with that. You have people who, weren't, who aren't fond of Hillary Clinton and they're speaking out against that and they seem to be disloyal to the party, right? The same thing with people on the right. There are people who are speaking out against Trump. They feel like, man, I'm evangelical, but I don't feel like I can promote this man's character, yada, yada, whatever. And they're looking like they're disloyal to their candidate. And as long as you're willing to deal with that ostracization, as long as you're willing to be to be uh, uh, challenged in that way, I think it's definitely necessary for us to be a part of po uh, po parties to get things done, but never allow your partisanship to supersede your principle is what I'm saying in, in, the, in the context yeah. of parties. That's great. Yeah. I, I, can I say one more thing about yep. this? It, it's so important to start at the local level on this mm -hmm. because, fo like, so... The thing about doing this locally is like, these are your neighbors, you have to look them in the eye, right? The sewer system has to run as good in the rich neighborhood as the poor neighborhoods or people are gonna hear about it, right? So doing this locally, investing in the local Democratic Party or the local Republican Party would actually be a good way to start. Um, I'm not saying that your thinking or your uh, wisdom is not needed at the national level, it is. But if you start locally, you actually then can map into the reason you know your friend gets to be the delegate is because he's been involved in partisan politics. Um, and that's not something that everyone in this room can walk into tomorrow. But you can walk into the party meeting in your city right now, right? Um, so there's, there's access and an ability to shape a platform 
um, and have a conversation about what your city actually looks like, who's actually in your city that you can be part of today. Katie, I wanna ask you a question. Um, I think as well as feeling restricted within two parties, I think people think th there's, there can be an impression if you're following the news that there's only like three important political issues in all of politics. So you guys wrote this really good book uh, about different areas that, that can be engaged in public justice and partnership with other institutions. Can you talk through some of the important things for public justice and human flourishing that get overlooked, but are, that are important things we can engage? Um, so in this book, we purposefully wrote about five issues uh, of domestic poverty that are kind of in your backyard, uh, but you don't know about them unless you're affected. Um, so we really wanted to hide these, uh, or highlight these issues that are kind of hidden in plain sight. Um, and just to name a few of them that I, I would definitely suggest looking more deeply into, um, the foster care to human trafficking connection in the United States. Um, three out of five victims of trafficking have a past with foster care. Um, another would be juvenile justice, um, looking at the vast racial and socioeconomic disparities in the juvenile justice system, um, the way we're treating our youth children who are you know, 12 years old and, and up um, in, in just horrible institutions um, that really are not treating them as we would treat our own children um, who have run into trouble. Uh, payday lending is another I mentioned. Um, payday lending varies from state to state, so that would be um, one to look into um, on a state and local level. Can I, can I just interject that last year that that was actually a fruitful part of churches in Arizona coming together is that there was a bill that was proposed to allow this, this payday lending to to, to enter back into uh, Arizona, and the churches stood together, put together a task force, and really pushed against that. The bill was defeated, mm -hmm. and then uh, the they're currently working on how can you put together uh, lending structures with good um, economic uh, uh, wisdom and stewardship um, that don't have crippling interest rates uh, that can help people get loans that they need. So there's a positive that's something that's happened yeah. in the state. So yeah, continue. Yeah. Um, and I would just say, um, so those are a few of the ones I'll mention, but there's kind of two common threads, I think, with each of those issues. Um, one's been talked about the importance of the local um, so each of those issues, there's really local things going on um, that you can be a part of, and uh, it really varies, you know, city by city, state by state. Um, and then the second thing would be the role of the faith community, um, and we really try to draw that out um, in the book and tell stories of um, just the critical voice that people of faith bring to the table, um, to the policy table, not just to, you know, conversations within churches. Um, but the importance then of looking at, you know, when, if we're looking at solutions or hopeful diagnosis um, of these issues, we need to look comprehensively at, you know, the government, church, families, businesses all have a role um, to play. That's wonderful. So um, Wayne's going to wrap up the night here, but just the last few things I wanted to say is get this book. They'll be selling it out there. Um, um, this is, I, I read it, you can sit down in one afternoon and read it, and it is worth your time, and it is great. Also, buy Show's album, uh, the narrative, it is so good, 
Don't just listen to it on Spotify. Actually buy it, support good art. Uh, so your assignment today is get a newspaper and get his album, right? And actually pay for him. So um, will you be selling, selling them out there at all? Uh, will you be selling them out there, our copies? I don't have enough for everybody. Because so. I know everybody wants one. Yeah. <laughs> but I did bring, uh, I can't, I don't know that, but I, I yeah. I, cool. I don't know where, I guess I'll just stand somewhere in this church and yeah. scream, I got CDs. <laughs> I'll sell, I'll, come find me, I'll sell them for you. And then uh, you want to wrap it up, Wayne? So Jim and I all day and yesterday forgot to say this, every single group we were in front oh, of, yeah. and I'm the backstop on this, so. Um, on your table, there's cards. Um, the card that describes the Center for Public Justice is for you to take home. But the card that has like, you know, fill in the blank on it is if you want to stay in touch. So you could fill that out and we'll stay in touch with you. Awesome. If it's anything that we, we see is as, as believers, people that, that, that call themselves children of God is we've compartmentalized God so much and and his relationship and role in life. We put him over here, politics over there, um, work over here, where it's, it's, it doesn't work like that, right? You know, we, we as children of God, God lives inside of our life, and every single aspect and area of life now is affected by, by him, right? So if, if there's something that we walk away with tonight is what does it look like to tangibly walk and live this thing out and know that it, it requires much more. There's a local level, there's a, there's a national level of, of getting involved in things. It doesn't make sense to just look back and say, wow, that's jacked up over there without asking the question of why and how do we get apart? How do we learn? How do we educate ourselves so that we can be the church, right? Do the things that we've called to do, right? So that's the encouragement encouragement tonight be the church right get involved understand what's going on on a local level learn read books go to um, trusted sites and, and and learn about what's going on in, in all these areas I know for some people it's, it's daunting and the idea of it is like oh wow where do I start at but I think one of the reasons why we see things the way they are in so many ways is because the voice of the church is so silent and we don't act and walk out the things that we should do so Study, learn, and, and, and be what God has called us to be. I'm going to pray, and then you guys can take off. Father, we thank you for how good you are, Lord. Every aspect of life is yours. There's not a part of it that, that's, that you're excluded from, Lord. And we, as your, your image, your hands, your feet, Lord, I ask that you'll stir our hearts, Lord. Store our minds, Lord. Cause us to ask the right questions and, and to, to not be passive, Lord that you will move in a way that we would dive in, Lord, hands and feet, all the way to, to, to be your voice in the midst of darkness, Lord. I ask that you continue to do a good work here in Phoenix, Lord. I ask that you continue to do a good work just to your people in general. We give you all the honor and all the glory in Jesus' name. And the church said. Death of a Michael, not Jackson, but one missing in action. One who was shot over some fashion.